just want to say it's wonderful to be here um, this morning. And my wife cannot be here because my little boy has been sick most of the uh, end of last week. And uh, you know he's sick because he loves sport. And whether it's minus three or minus five, he's outside on the trampoline or kicking a ball. So he's been lying down for four days and he can't get up. So he's not well. And uh, so Michelle is at home with him. But it's funny because I, I don't like ministering without Michelle with me. I like, uh, it's, it's, we do it together as a team in a way, but I don't feel funny being here without her because I do feel like I'm with family. I don't know all your faces, but King's Church is a church which is very much uh, close to our hearts at Kingsgate, and I know, do know a number of faces and a number of people here. So it is great to be here and uh, to be, it's a, quite a privileged Sunday as well. I mean, not only are you uh, moving over to the Rose Theatre, the last time I preached to you guys, the last time you're here, but also after having had a time of prayer and fasting, which is such a significant time for any church. And I just want to say well done for doing that. Well done for praying and fasting. It's not one of the glamour tasks or the glamour things that we do as Christians, and yet it's something so, so important. I have a little seeking, sneaking suspicion. I'm not going to try and develop this theology this morning, but to say that I believe a large portion of the reason why we engage with Scripture is to fire our prayers, is that we go to Scripture and we, and we begin to see as God sees and we get stirred by what He is stirred by. We get reminded about who we are in Christ and what God's picture and vision is for the world and we get stirred to pray. And so it's wonderful that you guys have done that last week. Um, also, just want to say thank you very much to Phil and to Paul, the eldership guys, just to giving me the privilege to preach here. Uh, you know, I've preached many times and in a number of places, but it is an amazing responsibility to preach and an incredible privilege to preach. And it's, it's not a small thing to ask somebody to come in and, and take such a significant place as in the, at the pulpit and to preach. So I just want to say thank you very much for the privilege of having me here. It really is great. Now, what I'm going to be doing is preaching through Nehemiah. Uh, um, Phil hasn't, has given me a little bit of a rundown um, about what we're doing. And I've been, I said to him, listen, I'm 35, 30 minutes. He said, well, I do 30, try and do 35. So whatever I do, just say I did 30. And if we can just adjust the recording accordingly, and then uh, we're all in a good space. But I'm going to start off this morning by reading um, a chapter which is actually not within Nehemiah 1 and 2. I'd, I, I'm feeling pretty confident Phil will be okay with that. I've run it past the the uh, past Paul and Jason, and they seem happy with that. Um, I'm going to be reading f- uh, from Nehemiah chapter 3. So it's not a million miles away. And Nehemiah chapter 3 is really the result of what happens as a result of, cha- of Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. I'm going to go back to chapter 2, but I want to start with Nehemiah chapter 3. And I, and I am aware that Nehemiah chapter 3 might not be one of the glamour passages of scripture. You don't often see it on fridge magnets or on Christmas cards as they go through the different names of the people. Um, And uh, I know it's not necessarily one of the most exciting, but they've installed lights on all these chairs. So if you fall asleep and your heart goes below a certain level, lights will begin to shine. And I will know who's falling asleep while we're reading this passage of scripture. But what I want you to do here is not so much concentrate on each individual verse. I want you to get a flavor of of what is being communicated in this particular chapter. All right. It also is a chapter which has incredible opportunity for me to really mess up ancient Hebrew names. If I do just 
just, I'll just keep reading quickly, okay? So if you can turn with me, I'm reading from the ESV, Nehemiah chapter 3. And I am going to read the whole chapter. It is long, but I'm going to try and go through it quickly. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of, hun- of, of Hundred, as far as the Tower of Haniel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Mermoth, the son of Uri- Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Mes- uh, Meshazab, repaired and next to them Zadok the son of Bana repaired and next to them the Tekoites repaired but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord Joida the son of Passiah and Meshulam and the son of Besodia here's his tricky bits repaired the gate of Yeshana they laid its beams and set its doors its bolts and its bars and next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jordan the Meronathite and the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah the seat of governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, son of perfumers, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them Rephaniah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth, Hachirim repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hezar, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethsa, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehom, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired, and after him, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Mahaya, you're a 
a lot of vials happening in that one. Son of Adoniah repaired beside his own house. After him, Benanui, the son of Henadad, repaired in another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress. We keep on going. Hang in there, guys. No lights shining so far. And to the corner, Palal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the god. After him, Pediah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point outside the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. And after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the war of Ophel. After the, after the horse gate, above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emma, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shenaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah and Hanum, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berakiah, Berakiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijath, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the, mun- the muster gate. And at least in the muster gate, but that's island. And to the upper chamber of the corner. And beyond the upper chamber of the corner of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Sometimes it's good just to immerse yourself in a piece of scripture and to read it but one of the things that I want you to pick up from reading this particular passage is even though it seems long and boring and maybe the first time you've ever read it let alone had it read to you it is vital that what has been portrayed here is vital for the effectiveness of the church It's vital for us to grasp if we, as the church, you as King's Church, us as Kingsgate, us as the church in Kingston, are going to be a shining light, a city on a hill to the people around us. Tim Keller, who's uh, quite a well-known theologian, says that most scholars, both liberal and evangelical scholars, recognize that in Nehemiah, a shift is taking place in the biblical narrative. Up until the time of Nehemiah, the story has generally been about a great leader leading a a, a group of people who are kind of working against them, a a non-cooperative group of people. So you have Moses. He says, oh, remember Moses? I just wish these people are the stiff-necked people. And then you have Gideon. And then you have David. It's all big names that are the, 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 the main emphasis of the story as you go through the Bible until you get to Nehemiah and there appears to be a shift away from singular heroes to a community together working for God's purposes and on his work. We see something different. We see cooperation. We see everybody together. No one person is able to do the task of building this wall. Not one person can do it. They need to work together. So you have, if you like, maybe a bad uh, comparison, but they have the clergy, the high priest, and he is working on a section of the wall. And the Levites are doing it. And then you've got governors building their section of the wall. And then you've got this guy, I I love this story. Um, I've got two daughters, so I love this idea of uh, Haloesh. And he and his two do- and he and his daughters are building their section of the wall. And you've got people working out of position. They perfumers and they're working on their part of the wall. Everybody comes in and plays a part. We do see that one exception of the nobles of the Tekoites who wouldn't stoop down. 
It was beyond them. They're not going to get involved in this unglamorous, menial work that God had called to and others could do it. And their name is also mentioned in this. And in doing this, Nehemiah not only marks a change or a transition from an old picture of leadership where it is just one person begrudgingly pulling these people along to follow what God's work is, but he's also pointing towards the church age. He's pointing towards a church age. He's pointing towards us. You see, one of the things that this chapter three picks up on is that God's work is an us work. God's work is an us work. In Nehemiah chapter two, verse 18, which is the, if you like, the verse I want to use as my title for today and also just to prove to, to Phil that I have gone into Nehemiah chapter two. Nehemiah chapter two, 18, after Nehemiah has gone around and surveyed the walls and he goes back to the people and, he's, and he encourages them saying, God is with us. He's been with me. He's brought me to this place. And they respond to this and they say, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. You know, when you look at the, at the story of Nehemiah, um, in the book of Nehemiah, you see a lot of opposition as you go through this book. And God's plans and God's purposes for his people, my goodness, just being a Christian sometimes can be hard work. Just being a church in a community which is becoming increasingly secular, which is becoming unaware of actually the, 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 the importance and the significance of who God is. It's hard being a Christian and it's hard being a church. God's gift of salvation is an amazing gift, but living in the reality of that gift in a world around us is not easy. And demonstrating that gift of salvation to the world around us is not easy. And funny, when you read through the when you read throughout the Bible, and certainly when you look at Nehemiah, you see that whenever there's work that God calls his people to, whenever there is the, um, the, the, the promises that we are walking into, three things we always find that they're scary. We find that they're scary. Um, Abraham, Abraham, leave your land and family. Moses, confront Pharaoh. Gideon, take out the Midianites. Peter, walk on water. Paul, go to the Gentile world. You and I learn to love like Jesus loves, even people who don't love us. God's work for us is an impossible job. Not only is it an impossible job, but it's opposed. As we go throughout scripture, we, are, we see that where, where, the, where the kingdom of God advances, there's always opposition. And we see that most profoundly in the life of Jesus. A clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of God breaks in as Jesus walks this earth and we see opposition, whether it's with the Pharisees, we see opposition with the demonic, we see opposition, opposition. And what does, what does Jesus actually say to us? He says, if you, you know, if, you, if you desire to follow me, you will be persecuted. In fact, evidence that you are walking close with me is that you find yourself in opposition. If you never find yourself in opposition or being confronted or opposed, are you following Jesus? And the third thing is not only is it scary, not only is it impossible, sorry, not only is it scary, not only is it opposed, but it's also uncomfortable. The work and the promises of God are uncomfortable. Why? Because ultimately they're not all about us. We, we can so often, uh, there's, a, there's a tendency for us to make things us the center of the world. But actually, God's calling and his purposes and his plans in our life are not ultimately about us. They're about something far, far bigger 
than just us. So how do we deal with walking in God's promises and the things he's called us to do, which are scary, which are opposed and uncomfortable? And the way we do that is we do it together. We do it together. You know, when God poured out the Holy Spirit upon his church, it says that he, he poured out the Holy Spirit upon his church and, and he gave to different people gifts. We all got received different gifts. He didn't place all the gifts of the Holy Spirit into one person. And the, the, the reason for that is, well, one of the reasons I believe is f- for that is that we have to work together in unity as a team, as cooperative family in order to see the fullness of Jesus Christ demonstrated in a place. That is why unity is such a massive thing to God. Unity is a massive thing. And it's why the devil loves to come along and break up unity. Because as soon as he breaks up the unity within God's people, he fractures the picture of Jesus in the world around. He fractures the picture of Jesus within the, the city or the town or the village in which God has placed her. We need to be working together. We need each other and everyone to play their part in the wall that we are building. It is not the lead elder. It is not even the leaders, but it is all of us. But you know what the trouble is, is that we lack a king. We lack a king. And what I mean by that, it's easy to live vicariously through a charismatic gift a great preacher, a great worship leader, a great charismatic character. But that's not God's intention for us. God's intention for us is for us to be the people, not about one person, not about one person with their gift. One of the things which pleases me so much, and I'm pretty sure it pleases Phil as well, is when I'm away from church, and when I'm away from Kingsgate, a morning like this morning, and I hear a word saying, the church just absolutely rocked without you. I'm going, yes! Why? Because it, gets, it helps erode those insecurities that all lead pastors have, that you know, actually the church doesn't need you, you're not Jesus. Um, so it erodes some of that, but it also reminds us actually that not only does it deal with my insecurities, but it also says that, I'm not, that we're not building towards ourselves that the church knows what it's doing, that the church is taking up its responsibility, that the church is leading, the church is taking a role in the story. Every single one of us is responsible for the gifts that God has placed in us and where he has placed us. Every single one of us is responsible. sometimes can be easier and more pleasant to come to church than to be church. And we are called to be church. To own this together. We can come and be entertained by a good preacher or pleasant music. And I just want to say it's never acceptable to come to church to be entertained. We can come to church to receive and what we need, and that's perfectly valid. We all come to church to receive what we need. I need to come to church to be with my, my brothers and sisters. That's, that's valid. But there is so much more. We don't just come to receive what we need. 
Jesus is not a facility to make our lives work better, but we become players in something more wonderful than we can even begin to imagine. We are responsible for what God has placed inside of us. We are responsible for the gifts. We are responsible for our section of the wall. Responsibility is an uncool thing. I mean, some people love it. Can I just say, I'm a, I'm a father of three, I lead a church, and I've got a number of other responsibilities in my life. And you know, sometimes I just actually say, I would like a break from responsibility. Someone else make a decision, please. Uh, can I just actually, well, what is the greatest holiday you could go? So I could go on a holiday where someone else makes all the decisions for me. And I'd say, that's cool, I could just relax and just be. But you know, being responsible is actually what God has made us to be from the very, very beginning. We are called to be responsible. In the garden, when he creates us and he places us in the garden, it's with a responsibility. And it's actually funny, the, the thing which, which so quickly goes after sin has entered the world is responsibility. You see of Cain and Abel. Where's your brother? I am not my brother's keeper. I'm not taking responsibility for anything, for anybody. It's about me. Whereas God calls us to be responsible. God calls us to be responsible. Maybe I could be very naughty here, but I just want to make a comment. I'm not making a, uh, I'm not making a comment on um, Donald Trump. I'm not making a comment on his prospective presidency, but I am making a comment on the, on the slogan, America First. I'm not sure that's a Christian slogan. Us first and no one else. I can't see Jesus saying, I'm taking responsibility for this and no one else. As the kingdom of God and as people in his kingdom, our picture of responsibility is going to be far, far bigger than just the walls around us. He's given us responsibility far, far bigger than that. There's a different picture that we see in Nehemiah, a people taking responsibility. One of the things which is uh, interesting about the, the story of Nehemiah and uh, the return of these exiles from, uh, from Babylon is it's not very glamorous. You know, when I think about the first exile when they returned in the first uh, thing with Moses. I mean, there we had 10 plagues. We had a parting of the sea. Um, we had cloud by day and fire by night. We had manna fall. I mean, this is a, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there weren't problems and issues and mundanity, but when I read the story through Exodus, this is a, this is a movie here. When, I, when you read through Nehemiah, you don't quite get that sense. In fact, when you, you might well have heard um, the guys who preached on the series already talk a little bit about it, but when the, when the guys came back and uh, the, uh, uh, the original guys returned, as we see in the book of Ezra, and the exiles first returned, it wasn't glamorous. A small group returned from Babylon. They go and they see that rather than coming to this great city that they heard about in the past from their fathers, this Jerusalem, this temple, they see rubble. It's disappointing. Even when they laid the first foundation, even when they laid the foundation for the new temple, those who saw the old temple weep and cry because it's nothing like it was. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be boring. There's going to be dull moments and opposition. That's actually interesting. A quote that was used um, today quite a lot was the idea of the dry bones from Ezekiel. 
And uh, one of the expressions or the fulfillments of that prophetic word is the return of the exiles from Babylon. Such was the destruction that took place after the, uh, when, um, with the, the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. It looked like everything was dead. Israel were dry bones. And actually one of the struggles that the, the people in, in, near, in Nehemiah's time and or in, 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 with the, the first exiles, one of the struggles they had was, are we still part of God's story? Their identity had been wrapped up in the temple. Their identity had been wrapped up in their, in their um, not only in the temple, but in Jerusalem and the fact that they had a standing army. And everything that they found their identity in, which made them God's people, had been destroyed. It was like skeleton bones in the desert. And the question within them was saying, are we still part of God's plan? Are we still part of the story? And they remember Ezekiel's prophecy, breathe on those dry bones. I'm gonna perform a miracle. I'm gonna bring my nation back where everyone thinks it's dead and I'm gonna lift them up. And we see this taking place within the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, within the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, that these dry bones are rising again. But it's hard work and it's not easy and it's not glamorous, but they're part of a bigger story. We see one of the reasons that they do genealogies in the book of Nehemiah and the, and the genealogies in the book of Ezra is to say, is to, is to illustrate this point. These people are still part of that old story. These people are still part of God's story. What the gospel tells us, one of the amazing things that the gospel tells us is that by God's grace and through Jesus Christ, we as the church are grafted into this God story. That this story is not just about a nation, it's not about a place, it's about something far bigger than that. It's about God reconciling all creation to him. And he's included you in a story. He's included you in a story and he's placed gifts within you. We see something of the story um, in, the, uh, right from the beginning in the story of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, we see what God calls um, a, um, a, uh, Adam and Eve to, to be those who, who um, extend, if you like, the rule, the shalom, the rule and reign of God over creation, to subdue um, and have dominion over creation. And then we see this picture in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, which is a, which is a picture of the gospel. When God calls to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your family. He says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The apostle Paul speaks about this as the gospel preached and advanced. And we can see this picture of the gospel. It's about a people who are filled with the blessing of God and who take this blessing of God to the world around them. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed by what I am going to do. You are the inheritors of that promise. I mean, we talk about prophetic words. I love prophetic words. And, and, and I find encouragement in prophetic words. But guys, look at this, what we've received. This is the church. This is the blessing that God has placed upon the church. We are called the seed of Abraham because we are in the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. That means all of us are inheritors of this promise. 
to be a blessing to the people on the earth. It's through the blessing God pours out upon us, we will be a blessing. And we see a little picture of what this looks like. Not a little picture, sorry. A profound picture in Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus walks the earth, we we see what this new humanity looks like. We see what this new humanity looks like. What you, let me just say, what you and I are being transformed into. Jesus is not only our salvation. He's our destiny. He is what we are being transformed into. And you might look at yourself in the mirror sometimes. You may look at your, regard your behavior sometimes like I do and think, yeesh, that cannot be true. But it's fortunately not based on how I feel or what my perceptions are, but it's based on, based on what Jesus has done. You and I are being transformed increasingly into his image and to walk increasingly like him in this world around us. To be that blessing. And when Jesus uh, ascends, from, when, he, when he's resurrected, and then he um, uh, ascends into heaven, he pours, the Spirit is poured out upon us so that we can continue his work. We continue his work. In 1 Peter, which I know you did a wonderful series through, and I had the privilege of preaching in that too, Peter says, but you are a chosen race. Now he's writing to Gentiles. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is Israel language. The language that he would have been used speaking about Israel. He says, you are a royal priest, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once you were not part of a, the God story, once you, you were on your own, wandering in the desert, going somewhere else, but I, he says, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You and I have been called into a God story and equipped to be part of that God story. Equipped to play a part of that story. We are called to be a city on a hill, to go into the world and make disciples, to demonstrate the kingdom of God by proclaiming the good news, by healing the sick, by social justice and caring for the poor, but above all things, by loving with a Jesus kind of love. So we see the story in Nehemiah. And I love the fact that we see rich and poor, young and old, children and mothers and fathers, all involved, all playing their part. And they named. I struggle to pronounce them, fair enough. But they named. They find a place in this incredible book by building a wall. Building a wall. But it's a wall that God wanted built. It's a wall with gates through which the savior of the world would pass with his parents. I wonder if they thought about that as they built that wall. They would have no idea on God's mission, on God's plans and purposes, but they had no idea what they were building, the significance and the importance of it. I wonder if, if they built those gates and whatever family or whoever it was that built those gates in the one part of that wall that, that Jesus would enter on a donkey the crowds crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Whether they thought, we're actually building that gate through which the Savior of the world is going to pass. 
I wonder if those who built that wall and were building parts of that wall, um, whichever part of that gate it was, thought, well, even, they could never have known that as they built that one particular gate, that it would be the gate through which Jesus went with a cross, walked out of that city with your name and my name upon him. Enabling us to be part of the story, part of the new heaven and the new earth. And their names, these names are recorded on this wall, on this, in this book about what they did. To be a Christian is to be part of a story that really counts, that is eternal, that has creation in its sights, that is regarded by God. We might not see the full impact of all that God does with what our part of the story is. As long as we are faithful, as long as we are, I was speaking to someone the other day and they said, what if I don't see the promises of God in my life? And I said, you know, one of the things is, I, you may not see the promises of God in your life in this life. I can't promise you that. But you will see the promises of God. Because one day, when you, when the, when the new heaven and the new earth, you will see the part that you played, the prayer that you pl- prayed, the work that you did, the love that you gave, the giving that you gave, and all of that in the big story of what God has done. We might not see the full impact, but God does. What a privilege. What a privilege to find yourself in God's story like these names. You and I are called to have our names in that story remembered. I want to just, uh, I know we're going to um, finish off shortly, but I just want to just ask you a question. And uh, again, the, the lights are on on your seats, so if you fall asleep, I will see. Um, but I want to ask you this question as you close your eyes. What does it mean for you to own? What does it look like? What does it look like for you to own the King's Church story? Or let me rephrase it. What does it look like for you to own God's story as reflected in King's Church? What does it look like for you to own it? Just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to ask yourself, what does it look like to own a story. as you guys move into the Rose Theatre and all the things that are involved with that and beyond the Rose Theatre, beyond the Rose Theatre, beyond all of that, there is so much to be done. So much to be done. I used to be a chartered accountant. Yeah, glamour job. And uh, I was very blessed and I used to work in investment banking. And... um, you know, I, I, I did so many spreadsheets. I implemented systems um, 
I think I was talking to Scott about some of the systems that I implemented. And uh, you know, I, I remember this one system we implemented was like, th I think in the end we spent 35 million pounds on implementing a, a software system into the bank. And within four, mo four years they'd replaced it. I've got a new system going, you know. And I'm not, I want to hear, hear, hopefully you hear what I'm saying here. Uh, I'm not knocking the significance and the importance of work that we do. It's vital and important. I mean, I could preach on Thessalonians and a number of other passages about the significance and the importance and the value of work. But what I am saying is that there's so much of our lives can be invested in things which are temporal and pass away. No one remembers my incredible spreadsheets. No one ever uses the software system I was using. It all passes away. But the Christian faith gives us an opportunity to be part of something which never, ever fades. Eternal and infinite. Grab it with both hands. Wherever you find that expression, grab it with both hands by being part of an eternal story. Let us, us, rebuild the wall. Thank you.